Well, we have been, for those who are, are new, we have been studying the book of Genesis. Genesis is the first book in your Bible, and we've been just going chapter by chapter through the book of Genesis. And today, we are in chapter 28. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. Um, and by the way, does anybody know where that stairway is on the earth? Free donut for anybody who knows where that is. Where is it? No? Oh, st- cover of a Sticks album? Now, that, that was Led Zeppelin. <laughs> That's at the Batavia Quarry. Did you get that, Pete? Get, come on up here. No, just, okay. <laughs> um, so so here's, here's kind of the background. In chapter 25, we read that Isaac marries Rebekah, and she's pregnant. And as she's pregnant, the, the, she has twins. They're wrestling in her womb. And she seeks the Lord and says, what's going on here? And God says, they're going to wrestle, and the older will serve the younger. Usually it's the older has the rights uh, of the firstborn, but in this case, the older is going to serve the younger. And that was a prophecy about these two sons of hers in her womb. She gives birth to Esau, the older, and to Jacob, the younger, And we see that Jacob is a deceiver. And he actually tricks his brother Esau, who's a a man's man. He went out hunting one day, and he came home and he said, I'm famished. Um, And his brother Jacob was cooking some stew, and Jacob thinks, hmm, this is my opportunity. He says, I'll give you a bowl of soup if you sell me your birthright. Now, the birthright was the, the older usually got a bigger inheritance than the younger. And uh, Esau says, sure, bowl of soup, you can have my birthright. So he tricks him, he manipulates him out of uh, his birthright. And then in chapter 27, um, we just summarize it this way, Jacob goes to his father, Isaac, who's blind, and he pretends to be Esau, his older brother, puts on his clothes so he smells like him, and he says, Hey, Dad, it's me, Esau. Uh, Give me my blessing. And Isaac's a little leery, but he blesses him. And he gives him the Abrahamic blessing. There's a a certain line through which the, the, uh, the Messiah would come. And he blesses Jacob, even though the blessing technically should have gone to Esau. Now, in chapter 28, here's what happens. Esau is so upset that he declares, I'm going to murder my brother. So, Mama Rebecca, who favors Jacob, has a plan to get Jacob out of town before Esau can kill him. And here's her plan. Uh, Esau, the older brother, has married two Canaanite women. So Rebecca goes to Isaac and says, these Canaanite women are driving me crazy. I can hardly live because of these Canaanite women. Now, 
Jacob has not married yet. Please don't let him marry a Canaanite woman. Send him back to our home area so he can find a wife. So at this point, Isaac, I think, knows that in God's sovereignty, Jacob is the chosen one. So he blesses him and sends him on his way all the way back to Haran, which is 550 miles away. All right? So that's where we pick up in today's scripture. Genesis 28:10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. So it wasn't uh, my pillow. Uh, It was a rock. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder. And we're going to see that that can be translated a stairway set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So not only does uh, Isaac give Jacob the Abrahamic blessing, God reaffirms the Abrahamic blessing to Jacob. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar. So you could say he took his pillar and set it up as a pillar. Okay. Yeah. Well, we sang that song and you got me all started, right? He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. You go, what was that all about? Well, do any of you remember growing up there was a kid's magazine called Highlight Magazine? Yeah? And they, the, my favorite thing was the little picture, and you had to find the hidden things, like there's a shoe or there's a snake or something. So I, I wanted to see if I could find one, and here's... Here's a, a, this, is, this is weird because it's got to be a Christian who did it because it's the lion and the lamb laying down together. But there's like lizards hidden. See the lizard right there? And there? And there? And in his beard there's a bunch of lizards? And then there's faces. Like there's a face. There's a face. So this Christian artist felt it was appropriate to hide lizards and decapitated heads all over this. Right? 
But um, some people have said the Old Testament is kind of like one of these find it pictures. And what do they mean by that? Well, you could say the New Testament is about Christ revealed, clearly revealed, whereas the Old Testament, you could say, is about Christ concealed. Okay? Um, How is he concealed? Well, the the whole storyline of the Old Testament is pointing to a Savior who would come and save us from our sin, but there's little hidden pictures here and there, and theologians call those hidden pictures types. A type is, it could be a person, it could be a place, it could be an office, like the prophet, priest, or king office. Um, It could be an event that all points to or foreshadows Jesus. In our passage today, we see three types that point to Jesus. The, The stairway to heaven, or really from heaven, is Jesus. The promise that is given to Jacob foreshadows the promise that we have in Jesus. Okay? And the house of God is Jesus. So you can't go wrong. In Sunday school, the answer is always Jesus, right? What do all these things point to? Jesus. So let me show you, first of all, the ladder, okay? Um, Now, uh, many of your translations translate it stairway, and the Hebrew word could be translated either ladder or stairway. Um, Now, Jesus himself claims to be the fulfillment of the stairway from heaven. And our youth on Wednesday nights, both junior high and senior high, have been studying the book of John. And in the book of John, we see that Jesus claims to be the stairway from heaven. And we see this when Jesus starts gathering his first disciples. In fact, quiz question, youth. Okay, we had a little quiz on Wednesday night. The first four disciples that Jesus called to himself were who? Who can, who can answer the first four disciples? Are any of them here? James, John, <laughs> I'll take anybody at this point. Okay. Greta, you remember? Okay. Alyssa? Okay. Nathaniel, Philip. And the very first guy was Andrew. And he was the brother of a guy named Peter, right? So, uh, so it was Andrew, Peter, uh, Philip. And then Philip goes to a guy named Nathaniel. Right? So Jesus has not yet met Nathaniel in John chapter 1, but um, here's what happens. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. So this is an honest uh, Jewish man. Nathaniel said to him, How did you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, many commentators say, well, 
a pious Jewish person would find a tree, the shade of a tree, and there were many fig trees, and would sit under a tree and read the scriptures. So in all probability, uh, Nathaniel was having his quiet time under the fig tree. And Jesus says, I saw that in my mind. Okay, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Okay, you're impressed with that. You're going to see some amazing things. What did he mean? You're going to see me walk on water. You're going to see me feed the multitudes. You're going to see me raise the dead. You're going to see me rise from the dead. But then Jesus says this. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In the dream of the stairway, behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. What's Jesus saying? I'm the stairway to heaven. I am the fulfillment of Jacob's dream. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Okay. Now, got to ask a really important question. Who used the stairway? Forget the angels. But between God and Jacob, who actually used the stairway? It wasn't Jacob, right? He was sound asleep. The, remember when, we, when, when Abraham cut the animals in half and there um, was, was going to have a covenant between him and God, but God put Abraham in a deep sleep and God passed through the pieces of the animals. That was a one-way covenant. Same thing here. Jacob is asleep at the bottom of the stairway. It was God who used the stairway. Now, in your ESV study Bible, there's this note. The expression, the Lord stood above it, so you get this picture that God's at the top of the stairway talking down to Jacob. The expression, the Lord stood above it, could also be rendered, the Lord stood beside him. Jacob's reaction in verse 16, surely the Lord is in this place, suggests that he perceived God as being with him on earth rather than in heaven. In other words, the Lord descended down the stairway and stood beside Jacob and talked to him. The gospel is in there, okay? You go, what's the difference between Christianity and every other world religion? Every other world religion is about climbing the stairway to heaven. Being religious enough or doing enough good things to get to heaven, Christianity says you can never be good enough. God's standard is this. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be ye perfect 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. You can't be good enough to satisfy God's holy standard. His holy standard is perfection. So, the only way sinners can be welcomed into heaven is if somebody lives a perfect life in their place and dies a just death in their place. That's what Christianity is about. God coming down the stairway, becoming a human being, living a perfect life, dying on the cross to pay for our sins, and we trust in Jesus, and we are taken to heaven. There's the gospel. The, it's, it's a one-way stairway that God comes down. It's not about us climbing up. Okay. So the first picture of Jesus is the stairway itself. Now, the next picture of, of Jesus is the promise that is given to Jacob. And behold, the Lord stood above it, or stood beside him, it could say, And said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There's the Abrahamic blessing. Okay, But but here's, here's Jacob. He's on the run. He's a fugitive. And I'm sure he's thinking, thanks for all these promises about the land, but I'm leaving the land right now. How do I know I'm ever even going to come back here? How do I know I won't be killed? Well, here's the promise. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The, the promise is, Jacob, I know you're terrified. I know you're alone But I will go with you, and even when you leave the land, I will bring you back to the land. Now, I believe the promised land given to Israel is a picture of the new heaven and the new earth that we will be receiving as believers in Christ. And just as God promised Jacob to bring him safely back to the promised land, I believe part of the gospel promise is not just that Jesus died to pay for your sins, but that if you truly believe in him, he will bring you safely into the new heaven and the new earth. In other words, you know that debate about whether you can or can't lose your salvation? I believe part of the gospel promise is that when he saves you, he keeps you. Just as we see Jacob go through many dangers, toils, and snares, yet he is brought safely back to the promised land, I believe part of the gospel promise is that he saves you and he keeps you saved. Um, we, uh, and by the way, if it were possible to lose your salvation, I would have lost mine by now, right? 
Um, when you think about it, if you think you can lose your salvation, but you haven't, isn't that a little arrogant? I know I would have lost mine by now. But on top of that, are there promises that he will keep us? Now, again, on Wednesday nights, we've been studying uh, the Gospel of John, and there are some awesome promises in the Gospel of John about this very thing. In John 6, Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. He's talking about people here. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So let's do some math. I should lose nothing of all. So all minus nothing equals all. Right, okay. <laughs> All, take away none, equals all. Okay, she's, uh, Alyssa's a math teacher, so just keep me on. So Jesus always does God's will. God's will is that Jesus lose none of all. Guess what? He loses none of all. Right? So here in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. And by the way, how do, how do his sheep hear his voice? Through the preaching of the word, right? If you're his, as the preacher is up here preaching, you're hearing his voice. Am I claiming to be a prophet? No. To the degree that I am faithfully proclaiming the word of God, that's the degree to which you as a sheep are hearing the voice of the Lord. And as you're reading the scriptures, you are hearing the voice of the Lord, okay? My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So there's a, a picture of security, of him holding us. Okay? Yes, I know there are passages where it looks as if, and there are warnings given to believers, uh, you know, if, if you deny him, he will deny you. Um, but I think when you look at all of Scripture, what you end up seeing is those who end up denying the Lord, Judas, um, those in Matthew seven twenty three, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy and cast out demons and do this? And he says, I never knew you. It's not that he knew Judas in a saving way and then he lost his salvation. Judas was never saved. They went out from us, but they were never of us or they wouldn't have gone out from us. So there are those who are in the church who were never saved and they fall away. But those who are truly saved, he keeps them saved. And just like he promised Jacob, I will bring you safely back to this land, he will bring you safely to. And, and by the way, this is a shock for some people. You're not going to end up in heaven floating on a cloud. It's called the new heaven and the new earth. He's going to renovate the earth. And you will be in a resurrected body for eternity with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth. And Israel, the land of Israel, is a picture of that. You like that? 
Okay, good. All right. So the promise is a type of the promise that we have been given. Finally, we're going to skip that. The house of God. Okay. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, um, this is the human tendency. Whenever there's an encounter with God, what do we want to do? Uh, or at least the people in the Bible, they want to turn it into some, uh, some monument or a building. Okay? So Jacob is like, I've met God. It must be this special place. Let's call this the house of God. And he sets up the pillar. Okay, So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. So he's making it a, a special anointing. He called the name of that place Bethel. So El means God and Beth means house. So it's called house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Okay. Do you remember when, um, when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain? And we don't know what mountain. There's all this speculation in Israel. What was the Mount of Transfiguration? But Jesus allows his glory to shine out of his humanity. And they fall on their faces before Jesus. And and uh, Moses and Elijah appear next to Jesus, but Jesus is shining in glory. And, and Peter responds this way. And as the men were parting from him, as Moses and Elijah were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then Luke says, not knowing what he said. I think the NIV says he didn't know what he was talking about. Right? But he's overcome with this vision of the glory of Jesus. And his first thought is, let's build a house. Let's put up some tents. Let's make the mountain a special mountain. And I'm glad it doesn't tell us the name of the mountain. Otherwise, we would have tourist uh, attractions go to the holy mountain where Jesus appeared and shone forth. Right? Let me be clear: there is nothing special about that mountain. There is nothing special about the town of Bethel. You can go to Bethel today in Israel. Okay, but we humans always want to turn the place where God does something special into a holy shrine. Like the dirt in that area is more holy than the dirt in Maple Park. Okay? Now, with Israel, God even accommodated himself to the idea of a special meeting location by first saying, build a tabernacle, build a tent. And as they traveled through the desert, they'd set up this tent, and God's glory would actually meet with them in the tabernacle. Then when they got into the promised land, uh, they took Jerusalem and they built a temple. And God actually, in his glory, shone in the temple. So when Jesus arrives, there's this mentality that there's a special place or a special building that is more holy than any other place on the earth. Right? So did I tell you on Wednesday nights we've been studying the book of John? Okay. 
And we read about this conversation that Jesus has with a Samaritan woman. All right, now the Samaritans um, were despised by the Jews and the Jews were despised by the Samaritans because the Samaritans, when Assyria came in and, and uh, took them into captivity, uh, they interbred with the Jewish people living there and they ended up being kind of half Jewish, half pagan. Now the Jews worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans had their own mountain on which they worshipped. So Jesus meets this Samaritan woman, and they strike up a conversation, and uh, he says, yeah, I know, you've been married and divorced five times, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. She goes, I perceive you're a prophet. And she says, you know, speaking of religious things, I have a question for you, Mr. Prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain here in Samaria. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, and that was a term of respect, like not today. Woman, that would not be good. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Okay? The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. That's his little dig, saying, by the way, um, the Jews have it right. God did accommodate himself in the temple in Jerusalem. Samaritans only read the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. The Jews read the rest of them. Okay, so Jesus is saying, we got it right, okay? But on the debate, on the location question, where is the place to meet with God? But the hour is coming and now is here. Boom, from this point on, here's the truth. The hour's coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in, not Jerusalem, not Samaria, in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What's he saying? Doesn't matter where. Matters how. And you can worship the Lord in a cafeteria, in an abandoned school, in a cornfield in Maple Park, Illinois, and be just as close to God as in the temple in Jerusalem. In spirit and in truth. Notice it's in a small s, so most people think it's not referring to the Holy Spirit. It's referring to your spirit, but your spirit indwelt with the Holy Spirit. In other words, what he's saying is you're to worship with all your heart and according to truth, according to the Scripture, in spirit and in truth. That's the type of person that God is seeking. It's not about finding the right building. In fact, isn't it interesting that when Jesus teaches, where is he most of the time? on a mountainside, on the sea. He's not in a building. He's, he's saying the whole building thing has been uh, overplayed. You know, um, with, with Moody, we've been allowed to go to Israel several times. And uh, this last time, uh, we were in Jerusalem, in the old city, which is where all the, uh, all the tourists go. 
and uh, we were with, with a bunch of college students, so it, it looked like I was in charge, like I knew what I was doing. Um, and some woman comes up to me, and she says, excuse me, where would I find the center of the earth? <laughs> Do you remember this? And, and I, uh, <laughs> I thought, you're going to need a shovel, ma'am. <laughs> and I, I didn't know what she was talking about. But then I did a little research with my little friend Google. Um, Google, find the center of the earth. And it turns out that what she was talking about is, this is the Temple Mount today. Okay? And then on top, there's no temple there. That was destroyed in 70 AD. But since then, the Muslims have built this shrine. It's called the Dome of the Rock. And inside the middle of the Dome of the Rock is a big rock. Okay? Now, um, it's called the Foundation Stone. Let me, let me read this. According to the sages of the Talmud, it was from this rock that the world was created, itself being the first part of the earth to come into existence. In the words of the Zohar, the world was not created until God took a stone called the blah, 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 whatever it is, and threw it into the depths where it was fixed from above to below, and from it the world expanded. It is the center of the world. And on this spot stood the Holy of Holies. So this was the first thing God created. And from there, the rest of the world was created. And the Jewish tradition is that's the stone upon which uh, Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. And it's the stone upon which the Holy of Holies sat on the Temple Mount. And in Muslim tradition, it's the stone upon which uh, Muhammad in his night vision took off for heaven on his horse. And it's the center of the world. And this woman was on a pilgrimage to find God. Right there. Don't, if, if you're going to find God, you don't, let me save you several thousand dollars. He's here. He's not in a certain location. In fact, in John 2... Jesus overturns the tables in the temple. And the authorities say, well, who do you think you are? Give us a sign to show us you have the authority to overturn the tables in the temple. And he says, all right, here's the sign I'm going to give you. I'm going to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. And they're like, you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? And then John says he was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. All that stuff with temple worship and Herod building the temple and all the millions of dollars and gold and all of that was just a sermon illustration pointing to Jesus. He is the meeting place between God and man. He is God and man. And you don't have to go to any particular location because when you believe in him, Matthew says, Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, if you want to go to the Temple Mount as a tourist, that's fine. You know, I, 
I, I almost feel bad for all these people who go to, to Israel thinking that there's going to be some miraculous experience with God. I have had far more miraculous experiences with God in this room than I've ever had over there. Okay, So please don't feel like this is the end-all and be-all of where you're going to meet with God. You meet with God through faith in Jesus. Okay, Now, let me quickly wrap this up. So Jacob wakes up, and Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. He, he promises to tithe. Okay. Now, big debate. Is this a good example of tithing or a bad example of tithing? Some want to say it's not a good example because at this point, Jacob was probably not a full believer. And it sounds kind of like he was bribing God. If you do, 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 then I will tithe. Okay? Now, this is from the MacArthur Study Bible. He says, Jacob may have been bargaining with God as if to buy his favor rather than purely worshiping God with his gift. But it's best to translate the if as since and see Jacob's vow and offering as genuine worship based on confidence in God's promise. In other words, Jacob made a vow saying, since God will be with me and give me this and give me food and give me bread, then I will. And I agree with that, that this is a positive example. Why? Because the first example of tithing we see is with Abraham. Abraham wins a war. And he takes a tenth of all the spoils and he gives it to Melchizedek. And that's a positive example of tithing as an expression of worship, not of bargaining with God. And I don't see any reason why there would be one positive and one negative example. Okay, so now the real debate is this. Are Christians obligated to tithe? Okay, and this gets into the whole question of are we Israel or not? Okay, and that gets into the whole debate about Covenant theology versus dispensationalism. And do you really want to get into that right now? You do? (laughs) Basically, covenant, covenant theology says the church is Israel. Therefore, the Mosaic laws still apply to some degree. Dispensationalists say... The church and Israel are two separate entities. They had their laws, and we have our laws, though there is some overlap. Okay, So if you are a covenant guy, then this Malachi verse is very convicting. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So, you know, now, if I'm a covenant guy, then I lay this guilt trip on you. You, if you're not tithing, are robbing God and you're under a curse. Take that this Thanksgiving week. Okay. Um, Now, if you're a dispensationalist, you say, that was what Israel was doing, but we're not Israel. What, do you, what does the New Testament have to say 
about the percentage you're to give to God. Here's what it says. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. How much, what percentage should you give? Whatever God convicts you to give. Okay. Now, where am I? We got to end this service right now. Here's what I do. I say, um, with this debate, how much of uh, how much of the Old Testament law transfers to the church, and uh, both sides would say civil and ceremonial law doesn't transfer. But the moral law, and how does it transfer? Does it transfer directly? There are all these different ways you can, you can cut it. But here's what I do. I say, let's skip the debate of how much of the Mosaic law is the church under. And let's go to the pre-law example in Genesis here of Abraham and Jacob, who tithed. Okay? Here you are under a curse. I don't think we are under Mosaic law. Okay, kind of showed my hand right there. But just because we're not under Mosaic law and you're not under a curse, I think we do have to consider the pre-law example as you seek God on what percentage you should give. Okay, I believe it's important that we don't turn tithing into bargaining with God or into some health wealth formula. If I just tithe, God promises to make me healthy, wealthy, and happy. No. I think that's a wrong view of it. Okay? But I would encourage you to think about your giving as an act of trust. In essence, what it's saying is, rather than me scraping and and figuring out how to make it all work, in essence, you're saying, whatever he gives me, it's all from him anyways. And as an act of trust in him as my provider, I'm going to take a percentage and give it right back to him. Even though the world says that's crazy, it is my act of trust that my confidence is in him not in my cleverness and my scheming. All right? So those are some, some factors to consider. Jacob's response to his encounter with the Lord was giving. Okay? It doesn't save you. Look at it as a response to true worship of the true Lord. Jesus is the stairway from heaven. The promise that he gave to Jacob is a picture of the promise that he will get us into eternity safely. And Bethel, the house of God, there is no particular location where God is found. He is here with us and he is in us. If you have received him as Savior and Lord. Let's pray and worship team, come on up.